Dear congregation, <clears throat> Lord's Day, one of the Heidelberg Catechism is such a beautiful Lord's Day, isn't it? About your only comfort in life and death, to belong with body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior. What a beautiful confession. What a different confession at the end of Lord's Day too. I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. What a confession. How do those two confessions fit together? Do they fit together? Such a comfort, and yet such a confession about myself. Between question one and five are, is question, question two. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou enjoying this comfort mayest live and die happily? Remember what they are, children as well. Three, first, how great my sins and miseries are. And second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. And here that riddle only deepens. The way to live and die happily is to know how great my sins and miseries are. We tend to think the way to be happy is to have no sin and misery. The way to be happy is to have no problems, they're all gone. And here we confess the way to live happily is first of all, not only, but first of all, to know how great our sins and miseries are. How can that be? The issue isn't about becoming miserable. The question isn't how do you become miserable, but from where do you know your misery? We are miserable. We have misery. We have sin. Whether we know it or not, it's a reality for all of mankind. But the question is, or it's about knowing your misery. Because as long as we don't know our misery, we also are not enjoying the true remedy and comfort in the midst of our sin and misery. And it's also the other way. Knowing that comfort, the more you know of that comfort of deliverance, the more you will learn what your misery really is. Someone before the, the service said that last week you heard about Romans 8. You heard the, the message of Romans 8, and now we're going backwards. Are we going backwards in the sense of first we have Romans 7, and once you're done with Romans 7, you come to Romans 8? Or is it that as you learn more of Romans 8, you also come to learn more of your misery as it's expressed in Romans 7? This is something which is so important. This is something that Christ 
teach us initially and in an ongoing way. And that's why our theme is Christ slays with his law sword. Christ slays with his law sword. First, using its penetrating purity. And second, with his profitable power. Christ slays with his law sword using its penetrating purity and with his profitable power. Sometimes we can tend to think, well, we we all know our misery. We just need to know about how to be delivered from the misery that we have. Is that really so? Let me give you and also me this morning some tests of whether we know our misery. To know our real misery is to be more troubled about our spiritual debts than our financial situation. Whatever that financial situation may be, whatever debts we may have. It's to be more concerned about how we've broken that relation with God and how we've even as saved strained that bond with God by our sin than what anyone else has done to us in our relationships with them. To know our misery is to be more afraid of, suffer- of sin than any suffering we may have to go through. To know our misery is to be more troubled about dishonoring God than our image before others. To know our misery is to be pained and grieved and broken over our sin and hate it as our worst problem because our sin is against God the God who has made us, the God who is worthy of all our heart, all our life, all that we are. To know our misery is to be done with excusing, done with minimizing, done with pushing away the reality of our sin. To know our misery is to confess it before God. To know our misery is to live as one who cannot live without the grace of Christ. To know our misery. What is the outcome of this test, these questions, and many more could be given? But what is the outcome of that? And some of us may have to say, I do not really know my misery at all. And others will have to say, "I, I know my misery so little. And that, that failure to know our misery or that lack of knowing our misery is at the root of so many problems that we have. <clears throat> the problems of our coldness or our lukewarmness, 
the problems of our complacency, the problem of our pride and of our self-confidence, the problem of our false zeal and self-righteousness, the problem of our, our holding on to sin and our looseness of life, the problem of our presumption or the problem of our antinomianism, ignorance of our misery is at the root of all these problems. It lets us be satisfied to live on content with ourselves in such wrong ways. Some of us may hear of sin every week, but if you're honest, you have to admit, I don't feel it. Is that you? You can disagree with it doctrinally that that there is a reality of, of sin and that we're sinners, but you say, if I'm honest, it doesn't really bother me. What's the problem of your failure to feel it? Of your failure to be burdened by it? Could it be this, that you don't really believe it? Unbelief. Is that the root of it? You're like that person who's told he has cancer, but he feels fine. And so that message isn't really real. He thinks it must not be so bad. Because I feel fine. But what are you going to go by when the doctor says you have a serious cancer? Are you going to go by what you feel? Or by what the doctor who has examined you knows? You have this serious cancer. You see, it's a matter of faith. Do you believe this message of God or not? And when there's that unbelief, what do we need? We need to be taught our misery, and it's Christ who teaches us our misery. And he does so also by wielding this sword of the law to expose it. Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. God's law, that's that moral standard for all that we are and all that we do. The God who created us, the God who gives us our breath every moment, is the one who lays his claim upon us. He has created us for a purpose. He has created us just the way we are as human beings, Adam and Eve there, in perfection for his glory. And to know what is to his glory, he has given us his law. This is what we are to do. This is what we are to be. And whatever is in agreement with his law is good. And whatever is not in agreement with his law is not good, is abnormal. We can sometimes think that it's normal to be sinners. It's normal not to be perfect. Nobody is perfect. It's not normal to sin. Even if everyone does it, it's abnormal. Because the divine norm, the divine standard for our lives is God's law. That is what is normal. And anything else is abnormal. And when we think of that law, what do we think of? We think of those Ten Commandments, don't we? We read them this morning. That's God's law. Perfect law. 
And that each of those commandments come to us every week, every day, every moment. That first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's God's rule for your life and my life every moment. And if you read later in the Catechism, it expounds that law, doesn't it? And it says that first commandment requires that I truly know the only true God, trust in him alone, with humility and patience submit to him, expecting all good from him only, love, fear, glorify him with my whole heart, so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. And that's only the first commandment. And then you have the second and the third and the fourth about the Sabbath and the fifth about honoring those in authority over you and obeying your parents and the, the sixth and the seventh about adultery and the, all the way to the tenth about coveting. That is the law of God covering all of our life, every moment, in all its detail. But when the catechism here says, tells us what the law is, it does not go to those Ten Commandments in all their detail. It goes to what Christ teaches in the Gospel about the summary of that law. Remember how that lawyer came to the Lord Jesus and he wanted to Catch the Lord Jesus in his words. And he asked him that question, what is the greatest commandment? Because those rabbis love to discuss. What is greater, stealing or adultery? What is worse? Or what is more important? Not taking his name in vain or They love to discuss all those things. Maybe they could get the Lord Jesus in one camp over against another camp. But the Lord Jesus cuts that all away. And he says, what is the greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He summarizes those Ten Commandments. He summarizes all of the law of God. Sometimes summaries weaken the impact of all the details. But here this summary is is a summary that takes all the light of the word, of the law of God, and it focuses it in such a bright spot. It's what you can do, right? Have you ever had a magnifying glass and you go out in the sun and you hold that magnifying glass? What happens? You ever done that, children? All that light comes into the magnifying glass and then it goes down into one very bright point under the magnifying glass. That's what this summary is. It's like that glass that that concentrates the law into this one powerful, bright point called love. This is what God requires, love. And that point is so bright, 
It's like a laser beam that shines, pierces into our hearts. A laser beam that's so destructive, dangerous to our flesh. This is what God requires. Love. And isn't that fitting? That the God of love, the God who is love, should require love? The God who is good, who is the overflowing fountain of all good, should also be the one who is loved by us. That the God who is holy and pure and beautiful and delightful should receive all our love. The very nature of God calls for love. What God does as a God of salvation calls for all the more love to such a God. A love that esteems him as the highest good. Not just the, my highest good. A love that reverences him as my majestic Lord. A love that delights in him in his transcendent beauty. A love that longs for him who is altogether lovely. A love that rejoices in him and delights to do his will, whatever it be. A love that cannot be shared with any rivals. A love that flows to him with the whole of my being every moment of time. This love that is to fill my heart and to then influence everything I do, everything I see, everything I hear, everything I, every way I respond to everything else. Love with all thy heart with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, with thy all. That's God's command to you and to me this morning. Isn't God worthy of it? That our hearts would weep one pure fountain of love gushing forth in our lives, deeds and lives of pure love. And including in this love to God is a love to our neighbor. True love to, to our neighbor is rooted in this love to God, loving our neighbor as created in the image of God. A pure love without any hatred, without any reluctance, without any indifference, without any coldness or hesitation. A pure love to our neighbor. Who is our neighbor? Remember, there's another man who came to the Lord Jesus and he, he heard this command to, to love and he said, well, who is my neighbor? And the Lord Jesus had that parable. Remember the Samaritan? Actually, that, that man who was traveling and he was beaten up by those robbers and he was laying there half dead and, and others walked by and they didn't want to, to touch him and that Samaritan came. And he cared for him, and he brought him into the inn, who was a neighbor. Who are you a neighbor for? Is it everyone around you? Whoever crosses your path, it's one you love. All the ones at work, you love. 
all the ones around you, you love. All your relatives, you love. All the ones you've ever been in church with, you love. People on the other side of the world you've never seen, you think of them, you love them. With a love that shows. Not just, oh, I love people, but a love that shows in the whole of your life. This is God's command to us all the time. Do we keep this law? Do you love God with all your heart, mind and soul and strength? It's a yes or a no. Does God look at you and see you There is one, there in Kalamazoo, who's pure love to me, perfect love to me. Do you love all your neighbors as yourself? So that they they can say, there's someone I know loves me. So that God can look and God can say, There is someone who loves his neighbor as himself. Do you? It's a yes or a no. God desires this perfect love, and God is worthy of this perfect love. God speaks. And his word, as Hebrews 4 says, the word of the God is quick, it's living, it's powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of spirit and soul, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's a discerner of our every imagination, whether those imaginations are to the glory of God or not. How does that law find us this morning? say we're here in church and that's a good thing and I'm here preaching and that's a good thing but am I preaching with pure love to God are you hearing with pure love to God and Calvin says whoever is not pervaded by love and does not do everything out of love breaks the law in every thought and act Is it any wonder that Romans 3, verse 10 and 11 states, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The unavoidable conclusion of hearing the law of God must be that I am a sinner. Romans 3, verse 19 says, the law speaks God speaks that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. For by the deeds of the law there shall no man living be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3 verse 20 says. And that's the point here. And what a serious thing that is, sin. It's a word we're so familiar with. Do we know what that is? 
have transgressed that law of love and so to sin. Sin is misery. Sin is portrayed in the word of God in its, what it truly is, and that is filth. Job 15 says, How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. It makes you filthy. Psalm 14 says, They are all together become filthy. And Isaiah 64 says, All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Sin is filth. Who would like to live in a cesspool of filth? Who would like to be continually covered with filth? That's what sin is, filth. Scripture also pictures sin as a fatal disease. Think of Isaiah 1, how the Lord comes to Israel and declares, you will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even unto the head. There is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. It's a picture of of a sinner as a leper, diseased from head to foot. And what a terrible thing it is to have that disease of sin. And to go about through life with that disease of sin, which is fatal, which is, is, is dreadful. Another picture of, of sin is bondage. Sin, the one who commits sin is a servant of sin, it says. It brings into bondage. And what a dreadful thing it, to, to have this sin that brings into bondage. But you're not free. Worse, sin is what separates from God. Isaiah says, your iniquities have separated you between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. It's our sin that comes between us and God. That sin breaks that relation with God. It's that sin that makes him hide his face and not show his favor. It's because of sin that by nature we are without God and without hope in the world. And do not enjoy his favor, but are under his wrath. Do not enjoy his blessing, but are under his curse. Sin does that. And the worst thing about sin is what it does against God. Sin, the word of God tells us, is a fighting against God. Sin is a rebellion against God. Sin is an attack on God. Sin is a piercing of God. Sin is enmity against God. And that's the worst thing about sin. That's what sin is. And if that's what sin is, that's what God says sin is. And that's how God sees sin. 
And is that not how we are to see sin? We are to know sin. And so hate sin. Flee from sin. Grieve over sin. Turn from sin. How shall we do so? It's, it's by the, the law, is the knowledge of sin. That law which is, is sharp. That law which is as a sword. So powerful and penetrating in its perfection. And how we also need this Christ to wield that with his profitable power, which is our second point. Christ slays with his law sword, with his profitable power. And maybe someone, someone wonders, we're here and it's all about the law and all about sin. And where is Christ here? Well, Christ is here in this Lord's Day. Christ is in the Word of God as the one who holds the sword of the law in order to to pierce. Christ is that great teacher who holds the Word of the law of God in his hand in order to teach it. That is an aspect of what Christ does. He's the one. who is the law of God in the sense that he embodies the law of God. He is the pure manifestation of what it is to love God perfectly and to love his neighbor as himself. And he's the one who teaches it in a way that shows us how opposite we are of him. Christ teaches Notice what it says there. Christ teaches us that. In answer four. Sometimes there can be this idea that I have to learn about my misery on my own. And once I've come to learn my misery enough on my own, then I may flee to Christ for his mercy. Do you see what it says here? Christ is the one who even teaches this misery. He teaches all three things by his word and spirit. He did so during his ministry to that Samaritan, go call your husband. He was using that to expose her sin. And so many other examples. Christ teaches. Are you thankful for that? Are you thankful for that because you've, you've discovered that, that unbelief and that hardness of heart that, that keeps you from breaking down before God? That insensitivity, even as a believer, that after the Lord has taught you, you're so prone to forget and have such high thoughts of yourself and you can be so thankful that Christ is a teacher who teaches also this lesson of our own misery and our own sinfulness, and that he uses that law, and he brings it home. Isn't that what he did for Paul in Romans 7? We read about Paul there. At one point, Paul lived as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he says in Philippians 3. He prided himself in his strict keeping of the law, touching the righteousness of the law. He says, I was blameless. Others looked at him as one who kept the law of God. And he thought he did as well. 
He says there in, in verse 9 that I was alive without the law once. He says I was studying the law in the feet, at the feet of Gamaliel, and yet I was without the law. How does that fit together? He was studying that law. He was memorizing and knowing all that it required, so he thought. And yet he was blind to its true meaning and ignorant of it. And so it can be. We can be in church and we can study it and we can know what we are to do and what we're not to do and all these things. And yet we can be without the law because we're still able to live on without Christ. Alive without the law once. But he didn't know its spirituality. But when, this, when Christ stopped him, then verse 9 says, when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. The command came with the power of the Holy Spirit, the force of its spirituality and depth, the force of its breadth that covered its, his life. It bore down upon him, and as it bore down upon him, he came to realize there's something alive in me, and its sin is alive in me. I thought I kept the law, but I haven't. The sin is so lively. The sin is so powerful. Sin revived. And he recognized its presence in a way that he never had before. Very specifically there in verse 7, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. He had memorized it. But that point came where he came to realize what it was actually saying, that God was saying to him that he was not to have the least motion of covetousness in his heart. And he came to realize, there is that in my heart. There are those lusts in my heart. And those lusts are condemned by the law of God. And I'm condemned by that law as a sinner. Thou shalt not covet was the sword that struck Paul, exposed that sin was alive, and exposed that he was dead in sins and trespasses. The law slew all his self-righteousness, his self-confidence, his trust in his own goodness. It slew it. It was dead. That law slew in the sense of laying bare his spiritual death in sin as one unable to keep the law as God required it of him. Paul stresses in verse 12, the law is holy and just and good. It reflects the holy purity of God and the beauty of his being. The law flows from the supreme justice and fairness of God. The law is good, he came to realize. Because God is good. Nothing wrong with the law. There's only things wrong with me. I am not good. I am not just. I am not holy. The law came that sin might appear sin and by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. We're so prone to look at the law as just a set of rules. Yes, I fail in some areas. In other areas, I'm better at keeping it. But my friend, has a law ever come to you 
and slain you. Not just scratched you. Yes, there's this area I need to improve on. Not just pangs of conscience. We've all had pangs of conscience. You see it in children already. When you you come into the room and they're doing something wrong, it's written on their face. They have a conscience. That young person, and you come in and you ask, "What, what what were you looking at? It's written on their face. They have a conscience. Pang of conscience. It's not just about having a conscience pang which goes over again and you live on, but about being slain by the law in the hand of this glorious Christ to come to us and to expose to us the reality of the sinfulness of sin against such a good God who gives such a good law. Christ lives to do so. This is an aspect of his work. And if we desire Christ to be preached, then Christ must also be preached as the one who holds the sword of the law to slay. To slay our good thoughts of ourselves. To slay our confidence in our orthodoxy. To slay our trust in ourselves. To slay our self-righteousness and lay bare the reality of our sinfulness of our existence. My friend, have you come to realize that you can never satisfy the law? That I deserve death because I've broken God's good law. Luther said it in his vivid way, the proper use of the law is to terrify with lightning as on Mount Sinai and burn and crush that brute which is called the presumption of our own righteousness. It's to crush that presumption of our own righteousness. Have you felt the force of the law in the hand of Christ? Maybe with more emotion, maybe with less emotion, maybe with more tears, maybe with less tears, but that deep in your heart something has broken as you've come to realize my deepest misery is my sin against God. That's what it comes to. It's not this problem, not that problem, not the other problem, but my sin against God. And that that sin And here's here's the, the most convicting part of it, that that sin is enmity against God, that I'm prone to hate God and my neighbor. Do you say that's too strong? Me? Prone to hate God? What will you go by? What do you think? Or what God says? 
says in Romans 8. Do you see it there? Romans 8 verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Saying the carnal mind, that's the fleshly mind, that's the mind with which we are born. It's that sinful, corrupt mind, the mind that everyone has by nature. That mind, he doesn't just say, fails to love God as it ought. It doesn't just say it comes quite short in loving God. It doesn't just say it's sometimes resistant to God or is sometimes disobedient or sometimes even fights against God and hates God. No, it says a carnal mind is enmity against God. Can it get any worse? It can't. God of love comes and he says, love what I produce is enmity against God. It's something we don't want to believe. But greater than our unbelief is the power of Christ. The power of Christ that came to a Saul who would never believe that he was an enemy of God. And it came and it led him to confess what he confessed in Titus Titus 2 or 3, I believe, we were once hateful, hating God and hating one another. He came to confess it's reality. That's me. It's a devastating reality. It's a devastating. But why does Christ teach that? It's to show us the wonder. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. We have begun to understand the gospel. Is the gospel not for good people? Not for nice people? Not for people who have sometimes failed? Not for people who have failed quite a lot? It's a gospel for enemies. Those who come before God and confess, O Lord, I, I, I am prone by nature to hate thee and my neighbor. Christ died for such ungodly ones. He did. He was treated as the enemy so that such enemies could be reconciled to God. You see now why Christ has that sword in his hand? It's to slay. It's to expose what we truly are. To also to magnify. Magnify who he is. Thomas Hogg, who was one of the Merrill men in the, with Thomas Boston and others, he said, when Christ comes to save, he comes with a law in his one hand and he comes with a gospel in the other. And in that way, he brings to himself. Oh, is he, if this is something you still resist, come before him this morning, confessing that resistance to him, to his law, to his gospel. 
Confess it to him, knowing that he is greater than all your resistance to overcome it all, to break you, to reconcile you, and to show you the love of God. Knowing that love, what does that do? Knowing that reconciling love in Christ, what does that do? Doesn't it only make sin the more inexcusable, sin the more sinful, that I should sin against such a God of love? And and this is something that Remember reading John Owen. Have you ever read John Owen on the mortification of sin and those, those works? One of his great points is this, that when you are saved, being saved doesn't change the character of sin. Sin is still enmity against God. My sin as a believer is still an expression of enmity against God. It's still an expression of that carnal mind which is enmity against God. And that is something which I can never understand. How can there be that enmity still? How can there be that sin still within me? And then you understand that struggle that Paul had in the second half of Romans 7 when he said, the good that I would, I do not, and the evil that I would not, that I do and he can't understand it. How can it be? How can I not love God with all my heart and soul and strength and mind? He's worthy of it. I desire it. There's that new desire, and yet there's that, that corrupt flesh that's still so real, and it still resists God. And I need that law of God time and again to expose that presence of sin. I need that law to show me my misery again and again in order to lead me to Christ again and again and again so that I never begin to trust in anything of myself but only Thanks be to God, alone, through Jesus Christ, alone. You see here in in that end of Romans 7 that this knowledge of misery is an ongoing reality and that the more you see of the love of God, the deeper the pain is that I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. And the more it makes you need that love of God in Jesus Christ. That's why Christ continues to teach his law and uses it initially in an ongoing way so that all our defenses and all our excuses and all our minimizations of what we are would be crushed and we'd be left with Christ and Christ alone. Amen. Oh, Lord God, we pray to Thee Thou art holy, just, and good, and we are not. 
and thy law comes to us, and it finds the opposite of what it demands, a proneness to hate God and our neighbor, and a pride that doesn't want to admit it. O blessed Savior, wield thy sword, break through every resistance, show us what we are, so that we would not be able to hide it from thee, and magnify thy love for enemies that made thee lay down thy life. And let that love constrain us to live for thee with sin as our greatest misery and thee as our greatest joy. O Lord God, pardon, wash, and cleanse us Renew us and bless us, all for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.